0: Good morning, Lemmy Hope. Good to see everybody. Good to see everybody. Love that song. Michael, thank you for leading us in that song. It's so good. I, um, I actually have, if you've been around me, um, if you've had the extreme pleasure to be around me while I'm wearing shorts, um, <laughs> you'll know I, <laughs> I have a large tattoo on my leg that of a, a ship in rough waters that says, just simply says, reckless, raging fury. And it's actually a line from an uh, old uh, Rich Mullins song about the love of God—the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God—and and, uh, I love that image of, um, yeah, it's, it's a love that doesn't make sense to us. It's, it's, it's a, but here's the thing too: is it's, it's a love that He calls us into. He He calls us to, per, not just simply to receive that kind of love, but also to in turn give that kind of love out to other people around us in ways that. Um oftentimes don't make sense, really oftentimes just simply don't make sense and so i I, I love that that 's what our faith is about. I love that we have a faith that 's about love, so with that in mind we're going to we're going to dive into our series this morning that we've been in for the past few weeks in first Thessalonians where Paul is trying to encourage this church that he wishes he could be with but because of persecution and situations that are kind of hot in that town he can't really be with them in person so he's trying to keep them encouraged and all this kind of stuff and so as we dive into uh this next uh bit of scripture if you want to go ahead and turn over to 1 Thessalonians I think we're in chapter 4 yeah chapter 4 <coughs> we um Paul takes a little bit of a a turn from the topics that he's been talking about, and he's going to spend a good amount of time today talking about um, sexual purity, sexual purity. And so I, I got to be honest with you, this is one of those um, sermons that i this why it's so good for me to occasionally just preach verse by verse through certain books of the Bible because it forces me to deal with topics that I would not. Naturally, want to deal with on my own, and so hopefully by doing that, it gives you guys preaching kind of from the fullness of Scripture, not just Jeff's favorite passages, right? Um, which would be a lot of fun. We should just do a whole years of sermons of just Jeff's favorite passages. <laughs> that would be it would be easier on me anyway. But um, but so this is definitely one of those that I I would not have uh, necessarily gravitated towards, and here's the reason why. So it's the same reason that many of you would not have gravitated towards too. It's because of the times that we live in. We live in these times where, uh, when it comes to the concept of sexual purity, um, man, people's expectations and definitions of that, and I mean, it's all over the map. It's all over the map, and we live in this very. And we also live in this time where, um, where we're hypersensitive to not be offensive to people. Right? We don't want to be called closed-minded or bigoted or, or you know, any number of, of other you know, unflattering words. And, and so we're really sensitive about that. And you add, add to the sensitivity of our times, the sensitivity of the place where we all live, Northern California, which is hypersensitive on top of hypersensitive, right? And, and, and we are the most sensitive people in the world. Right, uh, congratulations. <laughs> we should get T-shirts made up. <laughs> I'm super sensitive, so right, like, like we are the most sensitive people in the world. And so, um, and and, and, not, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. In fact, oftentimes, that's a strength for Northern Californians. I think it really is. It's a strength that, like, we have a a, a high regard for people. And their emotions, and their and their—that's a good thing. That's a that's a very good thing. Um, that said, what what has happened is we've kind of moved into this territory. And I'm going to even include most churches in this statement. We've moved into this territory where we care far more about what people think than what about God thinks, and that's dangerous ground to be on. And so, like, for me, you know, preaching this this morning, I would much rather just this stuff not be in the Bible so that we could just kind of morph into our surroundings, right? Um, But we can't do that. The Bible doesn't let us do that. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about this morning. And so so this is what I promise you. I think that every person in this room will leave today either scratching their head going, I got to think about that, or, or offended, right? So, I mean, I I promise that's, that's probably what's going to happen today. Um, and, and I'm going to do my best to present what I have to present from God's word. So as I do that, keep in mind that your offense is not with me, it's with God. All right. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully, if you want to be offended with me, I can, I'll take that too. That's fine. But, um, but so so let's just kind of let's just kind of dive into what the, what the Bible says. Um, and now now first of all like like before we want to before we go there like we have to admit um, apart from the truth of what scripture actually says there's also this other side of that coin which is a lot of churches a lot of Christians have seem to have a really big hang up about sex. Like they harp on it all the time. It's all it's like their favorite thing to talk about. And not in any of the good ways, like it's just like it's just they, they just harp and harp and harp on it and and it becomes this thing of of um, kind of just beating people up with biblical sexuality you know commands and you know things like that and 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 they just get really wrapped up into it so so the church has earned itself this kind of shady reputation of of being um like you know uh, there's no shortage of comedians or or you know talking heads out there that will say, you know, why does the church want to be in my bedroom? Why is the church up in my business all the time? You know, why, why do they care about any of this? You know, why don't they just live their life and let me live my life and and, and all that kind of stuff? And actually, the Bible agrees with that. That's, it's funny that because the Bible actually agrees with that. The Bible, Paul in, in one passage says, um, you know, when I, was, when I wrote to you about... Um, separating yourself from the sexually immoral, he was like, I wasn't talking about the people in the world. You'd have to take yourself out of the world if you did that. It's like, I was talking about the people inside your own church. He's like, judge your own house. What business do you have judging the world? That's God's job. That's above your pay grade. Like, judge your own house. And so, like, even the Bible agrees with that concept of, of uh, uh, and to, to some degree, of kind of live and let live. Like, we can't expect... A world that is far from Jesus Christ to embrace all the teachings of Christianity—that doesn't make any sense for us to expect that. And, and so, but what we can do is work on purity within our own house. And 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 so, but it's so much easier to throw to like lob rocks at people from a distance than it is to have a face-to-face conversation. And so what happens in most churches is we spout hate and lob rocks from a distance of people who are outside the church. In the meantime, whenever there are impurity issues in our own midst, we tend to ignore, and we're like, oh, I'm not judging, you know, whatever. And, and it's the exact opposite of what Scripture ta- calls us to do. And so, so, yeah, definitely the Bible kind of agrees with that, uh, that, that kind of thing. But So the question I've been asking myself, and, and before even... but w- far before I was preparing for this message. Because, quite honestly, in the last couple of years, I've, I've had more conversations with, um, with you all, with family members, with, with friends, um, and your friends too. And um, But I've had more conversations around the topic of sexual purity uh, in the last couple of years than I probably ever had in my life. Um, and not just like conversations where I'm like, you know, the biblical expert that goes, well, this is what the Bible says. No, I'm talking like tears running down my face Conversations like um, painful conversations, Um, conversations where I know the people I'm talking to are, are hurting or wrestling or just trying, you know, trying to make sense of, you know, the call to live according to you know, in obedience to the God who wrote this, you know, two thousand plus year old book, um, in the twenty first century, how do we like, like these, like legitimate conversations, back and forth type conversations, right? And, and, um, and so the questions that I've been asking myself, you know, in the last many months, has been, how do we make sense of this? How do we? How do we live this life out in such a way that is so completely countercultural to the society that we live in? Like, like I said earlier, the, the concept of purity in our society is, is so twisted from, from the way Scripture presents it. Um, to, the, the, to our society's concept of, of sexual purity is like, pretty much, as if, you're just, if you're being true to yourself, then that's Pure. Um, and the biblical explanation of purity is much, much different, much different. Um, in fact, it, I would say it's actually the opposite of that. It's not about are you being true to yourself, it's about are you being true to the Lord. And so, and i just, just, again, try, trying to make sense of that. Like, why was, in, in, in a, you know, when you look at the New Testament Scripture, how, I mean, it is high grace, and it is high love of God. It is high reckless, you know. God change or, or chasing us and uh, pursuing us, you know, in, into his into his uh, family and into his his love and you know all that. Like it is high. It is high. We don't do anything to earn our salvation. That this salvation is not of works, uh, so that none of us can boast. It is high, you know, grace of God, grace of God, grace of God. You can't earn it, and then it's also pretty high sexual purity. Like, we're not talking a couple of verses. We'll talk about that more in just a little bit. So why is, in this big, big grace, love of God world, why, why, especially to those early Christians, why was sexual purity such a big, big deal? Because it was you. I mean, that's just that's just history. That's that's not just reading scripture. That's reading those early church fathers, the first you know three hundred years of the church. And I mean, it was a high priority in the early church to the point that when you had Roman historians or Roman people writing about Christians, most of the time very negatively. Most of the time, it was like these weird people. In fact, they called Christians atheists. Did you know that early early Romans called Christians atheists? Why? because they only worshipped one God. And that was so bizarre to people that they were like, obviously there's like a thousand gods. These people only worship God, so they're like one, one God, so they're like atheists, right? And so they spoke very negatively, and, and, and really there were a lot of lies, but, but almost to the, to the person, every person who would write about Christians would also say, but I got give to give this to them, they are a sexually pure people. Like, they take that seriously. Like, like they, they, they don't go around acting like, animals and just pursuing their basest desires and, you know, everything. They're, they're not into sexual control and sexual violence and all this kind of stuff. They, I mean, they, they live to a different standard than the world that they are in. And that, that's noted by historian after historian, whether it's Christian or non-Christian. So sexual purity was this, it was a major, like, primary marker of being one of those early Christians, so why, why is that? Like, why is that such a big deal? Like, like, if I was building this religion from scratch, I think I probably would have, you know, if there were some things, from teachings from the Old Testament, laws from the Old Testament that I would have held on to, you know, maybe I would have held on, been more likely to hold on to Sabbath keeping or, you know, or, or some other things. But instead, they kind, of, they kind of push all that stuff out, and they're like, no, that's all old law stuff. Like, we're not bound to the law anymore. We don't have to. But then they would hold up this high standard of sexual purity. So it's like, why are they pulling that standard out of the old law, but kind of dismissing the rest of it as, as if it doesn't apply to us anymore? That's a really good question. Like, and I, I really wrestle with that, like trying to figure that out. And, and here's the thing is, I'm so glad God brought me this week to this passage because this is the passage that actually answers that question. And so let's just kind of take a look at, you know, why is sexual purity expected for Christ followers? So so let's look at this. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Start with verse 1. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So he's like, you, you guys know that we taught you how, what it looks like to live life in Christ, what it looks like to walk in a way that represents him and the church well and you know, that, that kind of holy life that we're called to. And he's like, and, I, and you're doing it, but I want to encourage you to just do it more and more and more. He's like, and so he's like, here it is. This is. These are the instructions that we gave you. <clears throat> Verse three, for this is the will of God, Your sanctification. Let me stop right there and just explain. That's a big churchy word, sanctification. And sanctification is just this word that means once we start faith in Christ and we start following Him, it's the process that we spend our whole lives in becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. It's not something that someday you're just going to wake up and be like, I'm sanctified. No, that happens That happens in eternity. That happens you know, when we pass over to the, to the, to the next place. But, but for now in this life, we are in this constant, continual process uh, as followers of Jesus Christ becoming more and more like him, right? So he's like, this is the God, the God's will for your life, your sanctification. And here he starts to describe that. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, or basically everybody who's not a Jew in the world, right? Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one, here, and here's the reason why, here's the why. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And all the Marvel fans said, Amen. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, but gives his, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul connects sexual purity to this, um, this issue of holiness that we talked about last week. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that Paul defines holiness different than what we tend to define holiness. Paul's definition of holiness is not you being perfect. That's not his definition. Paul's definition of holiness is you increasing your love for God and each other. That when we increase our love for God and for one another, in this room, outside this room, just people in general, when we increase our love for God and for people God sees that as us becoming more holy, more like him, more like him. And Paul ties sexual purity back to that issue. He doesn't connect sexual purity to... He doesn't say, you guys need to be sexually pure because Moses gave us a law. He didn't say you have to be sexually pure because because of what the, the law and the prophets say. He says, be sexually pure because it is core... The issue of love, loving God and loving others, is core to the kingdom ethic of love. Like We are called to purity because that's what love demands of us. If you're really a loving person, if the love of Christ has, 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 has gotten into you and is now flowing out of you towards God and towards each other and towards your community at, at large then the result of that love is going to be sexual purity. We'll get into the reasons why that's true in just a second. So this is the big point that that I want to draw out today. It's this one, that we're called to sexual purity because we're called to show love. We're called to sexual purity because we're called to show... It's not because it's icky. It's not because there was a law back in the Old Testament. It's because we're called as New Testament church-age Christians... Followers of Jesus Christ to be a people who first and foremost to this world show love. And one of the ways that we show love is in sexual purity. Now, so let me try to break this down. Jesus, when, when he was you know, still doing his ministry on earth and t- teaching and all that kind of stuff, he says at one point, um, you know, what did he say the greatest commandment was? Do anybody remember? To love God, right? Love God. Love God. That's the greatest commandment. He said, and the second is like it, and it's what? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So love God, love people. It's like, these are the greatest commandments. These are the, in fact, he said, all the law and the prophets. And when he said the law and the prophets, he's saying all the scripture that we have, all the scripture, all that Old Testament scripture hinges on those two commandments. Love God, love people. That's it. Glory to God, hope to people. That's why, we're, that's why we're about what we're about here at Living Hope Church, right? And so all of Scripture, all the Old Testament Scripture hinges on those two things. Love God, love people. And then later on, on a later date, he said, he, he's already established kind of what are the greatest commands. And then he says, now I'm going to give you a new command. A new command. Not new as in more recent, but new as in new it kind of replaces the old, you know, you know that sort of thing. Like the, the old is obsolete, the new is the one. This is the th- that's the old covenant. You're not bound to that covenant anymore. Here's the covenant that you're bound to, and it's basically a, a, a kind of repeating the same thing. He just kind of puts it in different words, and he says he says this. The new command I give you is to love each other the way that I've loved you. That's the new command from Jesus. That's the kingdom ethic. That's what we're called to. And this is where I get so frustrated with uh, churchy people is that churchy people hate sermons about love because they look at sermons about love as somehow watered down, weak, basic. Like, I want the deep things. I want the deep things. Like, when are we going to get into the deep stuff, right? And in Jesus' mind, there's nothing deeper than love. It does not get deeper than love. And the reason you all need, we all need to hear sermons and teachings and and, and read scripture about love over and over and over is because we're horrible at it. We're awful at it. And Jesus knew this about us. We tend, we gravitate towards hate. We, We don't gravitate towards love. We gravitate like love is a choice. Hate just comes natural, it comes natural. It's so easy to hate. It feels so good to hate. It, hate is such a great thing. <laughs> like, it just, it, just, it just comes naturally out of all, all your animal instincts, everything that is human about you. It's so easy to hate. Love requires a, a choice to not hate. Love requires you to, like, put yourself out there in a way that sometimes seems risky. Love requires that you put others before yourself, that you put God before yourself. Love is tricky. Love is is difficult. Love is work. Love requires that you put your comforts aside and you think of of the needs of other people first. That's love. And that, for the most part, does not come natural. Now, the good news is, is that as the Holy Spirit gets inside of us and begins to transform us, sanctify us, to where we begin to look more and more like Jesus, what once was natural does start to become more natural to us. And we start to, as followers of Christ, begin to live out love in ways that are uh, risky and exciting and reckless and, and all of that kind of stuff, and it becomes, starts to become more and more natural to us. But like I've been a Christian for decades now, and I'm telling you, love is still something I've got to work on. Anybody else want to raise your hand high with me and say, i still got to work on love? Yeah, yeah, absolutely we do. Absolutely. So Jesus gives us this new command to love one another. That is what we as Christians are all about. You know what we're not all about? We're not all about what the right method of baptism is. We're not all about you know, whether or not people should still speak in tongues anymore. We're not all about you know, pick your favorite theological topic and fill in the blank here. We're not about that. But what we are called to be all about is love. It is who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Which means everything that we do, the way that we work, the way that we do family, the way that we do friendship, the way that we interact with people in our community, the way that we do church, it all has to be driven and informed by love, including our sex, our sexuality, our romantic relationships. It all has to be driven by the kingdom ethic of love, all of it. Like We give ourselves not simply over to Jesus Christ, as if that's simple, but we give ourselves also over to this lifestyle of love. That's who we're called to be. So sexual sin is not just about you. Like when you sin sexually, it's not just like, oh, I did something wrong. No, it's, you didn't love God well because you didn't embrace His plan for your life and, and His design for humanity. Or I sinned against you because it wasn't just an act that involved me, it was an act that involved someone else. So it, there was a, there was a, I, I hindered you and your relationship from God, or maybe I hindered your family and their relationship from God. Or, or what? I mean, it involves other, it's not loving your brother or your sister well. In fact, the way the Bible in, in, in the New Testament kind of draws it out, I mean, it really draws sexual sin a lot into the concept of adultery, which when we think about adultery, we tend, I mean, most of us would agree that adultery is sinful and, you know, cheating on your spouse is not a good thing. But when we even engage in sex with some, any, any person that's not our, our spouse, um, you're drawing them and their future spouse into something that looks like adultery because that sexual union is, is, is supposed to be holy and special, and you have, you have stained it now. And so even though it's between you and one other person, maybe, the result like the, the the spread of the impact of that sin goes far beyond you just you and that person. You've sinned against many other people in the process of this act. It's not loving your brother well. It's not living a life that's constantly thinking about the honor and the the lifting up of other people, the loving of other people. And we're called to do that. Why is sexual sin such a big deal to? All of us New Testament church age Christians, because it is part of how we show love for each other and for God. We accept His design and His plan for our life, and we love our brothers and sisters enough to not draw them into something that could be potentially very damaging to them. It's about love. All all, all the stuff that we do, it, it all ends up being about love. So this is what I want to do for a few minutes. We do live in times that are um, very biblically illiterate. Um, a lot of people just simply do not know what the Bible teaches. And, um, and so I don't want to assume when I say sexual purity that we're all on the same page. So I want to spend a little bit of time defining um, the way Scripture, in particular the New Testament, defines this. Um, in fact, I want to stay in the New Testament because I think it's, I think it's important to, uh, for us as Christians to kind of unhitch those expectations from the Old Testament because it's, it's, it's such a cop-out to go, well, why is that a sin? And go, well, there was a law. Because I, I think there's a, a deeper reason that we're called to this specifically in the New Testament, apart from it's just because it's a law. There are reasons behind it. And so I want to stay focused on that. So let's kind of go into the way the New Testament and the New Testament writers clearly define uh, what sexual purity looks like for a Christ follower. So the first point is this. It's to not be driven or defined by our sexual desires. That's the first point, to not be driven or defined by our sexual desires. Over and over throughout script, throughout the New Testament, the writers say things like um, that we are no longer followers of our desires. We are no longer followers of our passions, that we are followers of Christ Jesus. We're not driven by those desires, by those lusts, by those passions, those things, as, and they'll always com- usually compare to uh, the Roman world as the Romans or as the Gentiles do or whatever. We're not, we're not driven by our lust. We're not driven by our passions. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Fo- so it's, it's, it's this process of us taking what, is, um, that for, what for most of us comes very natural to us, which is lust and desire and, and unhealthy passions and things like that, and submitting even those to Jesus Christ. Going, I, and it's that it's kind of process of, I will not be controlled by anything, anyone other than Jesus Christ. I will not be controlled by anything in my life. I won't be tro- controlled by my, my appetites. I won't be controlled by my ego or my pride. I won't be controlled by anything, anyone other than Jesus Christ in my life. He is my Lord. He is my master. I even submit my desires and my lusts and my passions to him. But the problem is we're a society of people who we elevate sex as the single most meaningful thing about us. I mean, we elevate sex in our society so high. It is the ultimate TV shows and movies and music and everything it's it's all everything is pointing us towards sex as if we become somehow way more enlightened and, 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 and then mature in everything else if we are having sex. And that is just simply not true. Ask your neighbor later, don't do it now. Ask your neighbor, did you become more enlightened when you started having sex? And chances are they will say, uh, no. No, actually, no. Now I'm not saying it wasn't good, but but I didn't suddenly get brilliant once I started having sex, right? I didn't, if that's the case, then every animal, every creeping creature in this world would be elevated as we are elevated, and that's not, just not true. Like, just because you're following your, your, your desires, your passions, your lust, your animal instincts, if that's, what, if that's the way you want to term it or whatever, just because you're following that does not mean you are somehow more enlightened, more aware, more whatever, You've had an experience, that's all it means. You've had an experience. And so, but we elevate it as so high, we buy into this lie as if somehow, like us having sex, is just going to be the greatest thing ever, the greatest thing about us. And we've bought into this lie. I know tons, tons of people in this world that are having regular sex. That are miserable. I know tons of Christian people in marriages in this world having regular sex that are miserable. Some, sex does not somehow you know, lift us up to some sort of higher plane. Like music has never started playing unless I hit play, right? That's just, that's just not the way it works. It's just not the way it works. Our highest identity is not in our our ability to have sex or our our highest identity is not in our sexuality. Our highest identity is that we are image bearers of God. There is nothing higher about you. There is nothing more transcendental about your life than the fact that you have been created and called to bear God's image to the world. It's the highest thing about you. It's the most fulfilling thing about you. It's the most fulfilling thing about you. And we've got to take sex down off of this pedestal. I'm not saying that we're not called to experience good sex in our life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it is, it is not the highest, most significant thing about you. It's just not. It's a lie that we bought into. Look at number two. What is sexual purity for Christ followers? To pursue a God-glorifying sexual union in a marriage between a man and a woman lived out in service to Christ and community with the church. And This is, this is, this is where our conversation starts to get tricky because of the world that we live in and, and the disagreement on how we now define what purity looks like and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm, what I'm presenting to you is this is the way... The New Testament, the Word of God, presents to us what sexual purity looks like. Sexual purity, uh, if sex is happening, and for it to be pure, it happens in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. That's the way the Bible describes it. That's the way the Bible describes it. I'm going to come back to that last phrase in just a second. Look at number three. Or, to pursue a God-glorifying celibate life lived out in service to Christ, and community with the church. So sexual purity, and and again, I'm not saying your highest ideal that God has for you is to get married. That's not what I'm saying. It's an answer to that question. What is sexual purity for Christ followers? How does the Bible define it, describe it? It's sex within a beautiful marriage relationship between a man and a woman, or it is to pursue also God glorifying, beautiful, celibate lifestyle. When we say, and, and you know, for younger people in the room, we're we talking about celibacy. That just means a life choosing not to have sex, not to enter into those types of relationships, and just avoid that. Right. And, and, and the reason I put that second phrase in there, lived out in service to Christ and community with the church, is because when I was kind of constructing this, my first thought is that, was that, um, that those who choose the celibate life um, may not have the partnership that comes with a marriage, but they have the, the, the beautiful partnership and unity and union that comes with uh, a, a, a beautiful relationship with Christ and with their brothers and sisters that keep them encouraged and everything else. And then, I, and then I, after I had that all worded out, I was like, actually, that's no different than marriage. No different than marriage. Like, it's not like like God is like, okay, for those of you who choose not to enter into marriage, you know, I will be enough for you. No, no. Married people are called the same thing. God is your all in all too. God is is where you will find your ultimate encouragement the church your brothers and sisters in Christ will be the people where you find your ultimate encouragement and lifting up and and helping you in and through your marriage just as they will be helping will help each other in and through celibacy if that's what we choose whatever but but whatever it is that God has called us to both can be god glorifying both are done in uh, in in beautiful companionship with Christ and in unity and in support with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you want to also read the truth of what the scripture says, Paul elevates celibacy far higher than he elevates marriage. Far higher. And we tend to, because dis- the church is run usually by married people, we tend to discount that. We tend to say things like, uh, like oh, you know, for, for those of you who, you know, are called to the single life, then, then you know, God will be your all in all. And, we, you know, we, we kind of play it like that. But it's no, the call is no different whether you've been called into marriage or called into singleness. That's, the, the call is no different. Christ is our all, in our all in all. And our fellowship is with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we live out these lives of service. And just because you get married doesn't take you off the hook for sexual sin. Like, man, if I could just get married, I'd stop all this sinning. It doesn't work that way. If you're having troubles with sexual sin when you're single, it will follow you into your marriage. It will follow you into your marriage. And you have to work those things out and let let, the Holy Spirit continue that work of sanctifying us and moving us closer to Christ. You have to work all that stuff out. And it's not enough that you're a boy who found a girl or that you're a girl who found a boy. That's not enough. Because... All those relationships have to be seen through the filter of first and foremost, we are followers of Jesus Christ, called in, called in service to Him. And you know what's not most important about your marriage? What's not most important about your marriage is your chemistry. You might have great chemistry. You might struggle a little bit in the chemistry department. That's not what really matters. You are called to live out the gospel in beautiful ways, and in partnership with your spouse if you're in, if you're in a, a God-glorifying marriage. And so the questions that you ask yourself before you marry someone are not, uh, are they hot? Right? Hell is hot. <laughs> That's not the question that we're, we're called to ask. The question that we're called to ask is, can I live out my calling to have the gospel get inside of me and for me to deliver the gospel to the world around me in a beautiful, effective way with this person? And if the answer to that is no, it doesn't matter how good the chemistry is or how hot that person is, that's the wrong person for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. The wrong person. And so we're called to something higher. Now, that's the way... That's the way the Bible defines sexual purity. In particular, the New Testament defines sexual purity. I can't make, I've had this conversation with a lot of people, I can't make Scripture unsay what it says. I can't. I can't stand before you and go, well, the Bible actually doesn't say that. Because it does. It absolutely says that. Now, where we can have a conversation is, we can have a conversation is, is that teaching in Scripture still applicable to us today? It's a 2,000-year-old book. That's a fair conversation. That's a fair conversation. Is that teaching still applicable to to us today? So there are certain teachings that you might run across in the New Testament where you look at that and you go, "I'm I'm not sure... If, if, if we necessarily need to follow, like, like you know, there, there might be instructions about how women should or shouldn't braid their hair or the jewelry that they wear, wear, or should a man pray with his head covered or uncovered, or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we look at that kind of stuff, and it's pretty easy for those kind of obscure passages for us to go, um, I think that was very rooted for specific reasons in the culture that they were living in, in a way that that's not part of our culture today. It's just simply not. Nobody cares, ladies, if you're braiding your hair. If you got braids, good job. You put in some extra effort this morning, okay? That's good. So, like, like it's not, that's not the thing. But we, but we do have to ask. like, so the questions, you know, we ask when, we, when we're trying to figure that question out, is this still relevant to us today? Is this, is that, is the culture or the context that this was written in, is it different for us? Is, is our, is it different? That's that a different culture, different context than what we're living in now? And what we find when it comes to this issue, this call to sexual purity, is that it's not that the world around them was so sexually pure and they needed to live to that standard. It was the exact opposite. In fact, it was very similar to the times that we're living in today. All kinds of sexual sin was common and prevalent sex was used for power and control sex was used for I mean there was there was all kinds of premarital sex and and and, and, and in the Roman world a, a, a lot of um, um, whether you want to call them healthy or unhealthy, it doesn't really matter. But a lot of uh, homosexual relationships that were happening, some of them were very rapey, some of them were, were more consensual. But, I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on in this world that was very, very common. And the call for sexual purity in the New Testament is not a call to like be sensitive to the culture around you. It's a call to be separate from the culture around you. It's a call to be separate. God has called you to something different than the world that you're living in. And so in that regard, I think we're dealing with the exact same context and culture today. I I think we're dealing with something very, very similar. The other question that we would ask ourselves is, does this verse, you know, that I'm looking at, does it conflict with other parts of scripture? Or is it just some sort of one-off verse that we need more info about, maybe? So the first answer is that, No, the the passages on sexual purity don't conflict with other scripture. Um, And it's not just simply a one-off. It's not some sort of obscure verse that we're like building a ton of teaching around. In fact, look at this next slide. This is, in fact, get out your cameras. I want you to take a picture of this, okay? This is about 75 passages in the New Testament on sexual purity. About 75, and this is not even all of them. It's not even all of them. But I put this up here for a couple of reasons. One, I want you to take a picture of it, and I want you to do a little study on your own. I want you to just take some time and go read some of those passages. And I want you to notice, too, that we're talking Matthew, Mark. These are words of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, into Acts, into Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, on down. Literally, every writer, every author of the New Testament Deals repeatedly with the issue of sexual purity. It's not a one-off. It's not some sort of obscure. There's this one verse, and we've created this whole weird theology around it. No, no, no. It is a primary issue in the life of a Christ follower that we are called to sexual purity. And each of these each of these verses talk about different aspect aspects of that, from from adultery to premarital sex to um, I mean, on and on, homosexuality and all kinds of different things, issues, incest even. There's all kinds of issues that get brought up in these passages, okay? Now, take the time, honestly, to read some of those. To read, read all of them if that's what you want. It's not even all of them. It's just what my OCD would allow me to line up nice and pretty on one screen, okay? But there's about 75 passages for you to look at. It's not an insignificant issue. It is discussed repeatedly by Jesus and by every New Testament, New Testament author. And here's the thing we have this tendency to want to go, well, you know, say, take somebody like Paul. Well, Paul wasn't Jesus, so his, his words aren't necessarily, you know, authoritative or inspired or whatever. And what I want to show you by showing you this screen is that if you dismiss every New Testament author who talks about sexual purity, as uninspired, the result is we literally have no New Testament. None. Not a word. And so the Bible doesn't leave us the option to dismiss this as something unimportant or auxiliary. It is a major part of the life that we're called to. A major part. All right, here's the deal. I need to finish this because... um, Paul goes into another topic here in the next uh, handful of verses, but we're out of time. And so I'll tag this on to the beginning of next week. But this is what I, I want you to get a hold of as, as we dismiss today, um, because the kids are going crazy. <laughs> They're like, "Ooh, we're not talking about sex. So anyway, um, <laughs> What I want you to get a hold of today is well, this is let me end it this way. This is what you can expect from us as your church, as your church leaders. I don't, I don't, I don't stand or sit up here under some sort of self-willed authority on this issue. In fact, my mark, my my life is marked by a lot of failure in this issue. Um My life is marked by poor sexual decisions before I got married. My life early on especially was marked by um, an unhealthy view of sex after I got married. My life used to be regularly and now much less often (laughs) was marked by out of control lust. And so I don't stand up here as some sort of like, follow my example. It's so easy. I, I can't do that. I can't do that this morning. But what I can do is I, I can say, follow me in recognizing the sins that you're drawn to and the sins that you've committed that maybe you've never even felt guilty about before. And recognize that it doesn't matter whether or not you feel guilty about it. What matters is what God says. And if you're following him, you're called to obedience to him. And so I have repented of sins that, um, that, not, that maybe my conscience wasn't convicted of. But the Holy Spirit convicted me even against my own conscience. Because Why? Because I'd, I'm called to submit to him. I'm called to follow him. Even in this very difficult area. And I know, I get it, this leaves us in territory that is difficult for us when we have conversations with people outside the church, and sometimes even conversations with people inside the church. And it, leaves, it puts us in the position of difficult conversations. But the issue here is not, don't do this because there's a law, don't do this because it's gross, don't do it. The issue here is, live pure lives in the manner that God has called you to live pure lives. Because that's what love requires. That's how we best love God and love each other. That's how we do that. I'm not going to suggest it's easy. So what you can expect from us as church leaders, is that if you struggle in sexual sin of any kind, any kind, we're not going to kick you to the curb. We're not going to be like, ooh, gross, get away. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to love you. We're going to say, I get it. I've been there. We're going to to have conversations about it. We're going to pray with you. We're going to try to lift you up. We're going to try to, as we would with any other sin issue in your life, try to encourage you to a greater obedience to God. And Sometimes that obedience goes against who we feel like we are or what we feel like our desires and passions are. It goes against that. And this is what i found in any situation where I've ever had to submit myself against my own passions, against my own lust, my own desires my own proclivities towards certain sin. When I submit to Christ, I might dread it, but there's joy in there. There's transformation in there. God can change my desires. He can change my passions. He can, he can change my lusts. I might never reach the point where, I, where, where your pastor is completely free from lust in his life. I might never reach that point. but I can keep myself pointed towards Christ in a way that is obedient to him and in a way that, is, that lifts him up as primary and first in my life and recognizes that the highest thing about me is not my sex or sexuality. The highest thing about me is Christ in me. And so if this is an area that you struggle in in any capacity in your life, I, want, I don't want you to think like I'm pushing you away this morning. What I'm doing is I'm inviting you deeper into this family. Because we all struggle. And I think we all can help each other through this. And so let's choose that rather than isolating each other. Amen? Let's do that. Let's pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And there's this phrase that he teaches us to pray here where he says, and this is so beautiful, he says, Your will be done. Your will be done. And he prays this and then later prays it again in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's on his way to the cross and he's dreading the cross and he's like, I don't know if I want to go through this and it's going, to, it's going to be bad, it's going to be whatever. He's experiencing all this very human emotion and then he says this thing to God where he says, but God, not my will, but your will be done. Your will. Would you just join me this morning in praying over Whatever your struggle is, whether it's sexual or something different completely, whatever your temptation is, whatever your struggle is, would you just join with me this morning and pray, God, not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. Pray this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, I wish the way this faith relationship worked was that you just got in line with all the things that I wanted. Um, But God, I'm just going to follow your son's example this morning and pray, um, not my will, not my will. Even though I sometimes want my will, I want things the way I want them. I want things the way I feel, or even if it's unhealthy. Even I, sometimes I just want that stuff. But God, not my will. Let Your will be done in my life. And God, as Your will is done in my life, God, I pray that You would transform my my desires. <coughs> if there are things that I find joy in that You hate, God, help me to hate those things too if there are behaviors that I gravitate towards that you want me to flee from God put in me a desire to flee from those things so I just give myself over to you this morning and I ask that you would change me change me in ways that I struggle to change myself help my life to line up with the beautiful calling that you've called me to to be a citizen of your kingdom and to show this world a love like it's never seen before. Help me to put other people first. Even in decisions where I think I'm the only one affected, God, train my mind to think about how others might be affected. God, we're just going to give you the praise and glory this morning. We're just going to ask you to lead us where you want us to go. And we'll pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen. Amen. All right. See you next week. Have a good week.